We apologise to the listener. The last 10 minutes of Lance's talk on side two is missing off the original tape. Genesis chapter 3. You know, <clears throat> we have simply said that this chapter now is the explanation of the present. It is the explanation of the present. Remember, Genesis 1 is the fact of creation, and Genesis 2 is the purpose of creation, and Genesis 3 is the explanation of the present. What has happened? Why? has God's wonderful and glorious purpose and destiny for man. What has happened to it all? Why this mess? Why, when God has said that all things are so good, what, what is, why is there so much evil? Why the disharmony? And so on. We can't uh, go back now over any of that, but you'll remember one thing about Genesis chapter 3. The very first few words, introduce an altogether new element. We are in the presence of Satan. We've hardly entered into chapter 3 than we're in the presence of Satan for the first time, as far as these three chapters go. Someone new comes onto the scene that, as far as we knew, didn't exist. If we were to go on Genesis 1 and 2, we didn't know that this evil being existed. We didn't know there was any antagonism, uh, there was any adversary. Now we're in the presence of someone who is obviously a violent antagonist of God. And one of the things that we have said last week was the background of this chapter 3. It is a background of a ferocious hatred of God <coughs> and particularly of Christ and man as related to Christ. The, the, the one significant thing about chapter 3 is the way God is, uh, the, the way God is named. Throughout the whole chapter he is called the Lord God. Jehovah God, bringing into view the simple fact of his love and the whole desire of his heart to be in intimate, personal, and direct union with his people. The devil, significantly enough, never ever allows that name to come upon his lips. He only refers to him as God. Yea, Hath God said? And so on. And the woman falls when she leaves the ground of that relationship to the Lord and says, God hath said. You've got there the key to the conflict. There is an antagonist of God and he is out to destroy everything that really is satisfying to God. He is out not only to destroy it, but in many ways to seduce it and then to possess it himself. 
Thus, you see, human history is really but the theater of a tremendous, invisible, spiritual conflict. There are two tremendous forces, and these forces are out to possess humanity. On the one side, you have God and his purpose, and on the other side, you have the one that we call that old serpent. Some people think they're very far-fetched. But I think when we go a little further into this this evening, we're going to see that it is not the least bit far-fetched at all. It's not even fantastic. It is borne out amply in our own experience and lives. Here then, <clears throat> whilst Genesis 3 only very, very simply and clearly and directly speaks about something of the fall and of the background of the fall, we are in a far, far greater context, which only farther on in the Bible do we discover. The context of a being who left his first estate and said that he would be God and that he would exalt his throne, he would exalt himself to the throne of God. And then the whole story of his mastery of man and of the tragic results that came out of his mastery. So you see, Genesis 3 comprehends all that with these simple words, now the serpent. All that is gathered up into those first few words, now the serpent. From that we have just the simple uh, introduction of the whole evil history of Lucifer. Then you remember how last week we spoke, really, we confined ourselves really to the first eight verses of this chapter. And I trust you found it helpful. We studied together something of the fall of humanity. We can't go over that. It's far too complicated. It's not even easy to put it in a few words. But um, I think that most of you will have found out, even if you didn't know before last week, how the enemy always uses somewhat of the same method. The way his temptations come, the insinuations he makes, the suggestions that he makes, the suspicions he casts upon God and upon God's handiwork and God's purpose, are all here in seed form in Genesis 3. I don't suppose there's a temptation that is common to any one of us that's not found here in seed form, somewhere in these few, eight, these few verses from 1 to 8. It's all comprehended there. The whole stratagem of the evil one, the way that he comes at us. Well, we can't go over that this evening. I want to go straight on now tonight, and to, I don't think we shall get beyond this one point, the consequences of the fall. We dealt with the actual fall last week. What were the consequences of the fall? What happened as a result of the fall? Exactly, exactly what happened. Here we are um, in, as it were, at the point of an explanation. We are told simply that the explanation of why everything is in disharmony 
and why everything isn't very good as God originally made it, and why God's purpose seems utterly to have failed, is because man has fallen. Something has happened, and, and man has been displaced. He has left uh, his uh, position, and the result has been a catastrophe of the very first rate. But the consequences of the fall are far more instructive. It's one thing to just, as we often hear in gospel messages, to hear that the fall is the answer to everything in one way. The explanation of everything. People say, ah, man has fallen. They will talk in terms of what they call original sin. And they will say, this is the explanation of everything. Well, that's one thing, but it's not very satisfying, is it? We've got to understand what did the fall mean? What were the consequences of it? The first thing we find, and it's very, very important thing, is that man's constitution is a totally different one to the one God intended. Now that goes right back to Genesis 2. God constituted man in a certain way. Man was constituted uh, along a certain line. He was made for a certain purpose, with a certain goal in view. Mind you, and we're going to deal, we'll deal with this in a question evening, because it's already been asked. Um, was man made at the beginning a spiritual uh, person, or was he, what was he made? Well, the scripture seems quite clear. Man was made at the beginning a, a potentially spiritual person. That is, God's whole thought in man's constitution was that he was, of a spiritual constitution. His, um, uh, shall we say, his uh, first natural condition was but the probation of something far more wonderful. Thus man's whole constitution is made, he is made in such a way as to be very dissatisfied with the natural. The, the, he can't settle down to it. When Adam was first made, Adam was made, says the scripture, a living soul. And he must have been conscious of, whilst he was perfect, whilst he was sinless, whilst he was innocent, he was conscious of a lack. And that comes out, of course, in the question of naming the animals and the provision of his wife. But later on, it, it was even more obvious. It was something which I'm going to answer later. Why Eve herself was conscious of a lack. She was obviously conscious of a lack. She wouldn't have thought about that tree if she wasn't conscious of a lack. There was something that was stirring inside of her which said, this is all very wonderful. All very wonderful, but is this all? Well, the point was, the devil was telling her a half-truth. It wasn't all. God had so created Adam and Eve that they were made to be in union with God, and their only satisfaction lay in being one with God. Now, you know what happened when God put them on probation. There's what we call the tree of life, and there's what we call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the one side, we're offered one type 
of person. On the other, there's another type of man. The first type is a God-conscious man, a God-centered man, and a God-dependent man. That was the type of man that uh, God intended. On the other, we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a self-conscious, self-centered, and self-dependent type of man. Man simply chose the second. He wanted to be free from God, and he wanted to be in charge of his own destiny. He wanted self-determination. And he wanted to be able to live on an equality with God, very much like many people do today. They could condescend to worship God now and again, or pay him a visit now and again, or give him a few pence or shillings now and again. But that's as far as it goes, you see. That was the type of life man wanted. He wanted to be able to run his own life, determine his own course, be able to be master of his own destiny and fate, at the same time to be able to treat God as uh, an equal. This was what the devil came and said to man. You will be on an equality. You will not be riveted to God. You won't be dependent on God. And man said, that's what I want. I think that will be the thing that will satisfy me. And of course, you know, the enemy made this suggestion of God's avarice. He said, God is avaricious. God is mean. He wants to hold you in servile bondage. He wants to make you a slave. He wants to make you the doormat for his feet. And he won't let you rise above that station. That's all he wants you for. And the man says, yes, I, there's, there seems to be something in that. I don't want that kind of life under the feet of God. A servant of God, a slave of God. I don't want that. I want to be a person in my own right. The man chose what he thought was his emancipation and freedom. What he thought was going to be equality with God. That is all bound up in the two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life which stands for God's life and as it were being utterly centred in God and dependent on God and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of having the thing inside you, so that you could decide and determine and discriminate and do exactly what you thought. So we see something very, very, very interesting. That very interesting thought, as someone has, I think, um, mentioned, as to whether God's thought was that if man would only have taken the tree of life first, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would have been open to him. If only he would have come to utter dependence upon God, God would have given him the capacity to discriminate by the Spirit of God. That we leave for, again, for a question. Um, but it's interesting. What was the result of man's choosing of the tree of knowledge? Well, you've got it simply, almost immediately. You've got it in verse 7, verse 8, and verse 10. The eyes of them both were opened, they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Verse 10. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What was the very first result of man's choice? The very first evidence 
was of a self-conscious constitution. He suddenly became conscious of himself. He had never been conscious before being naked. But the first thing, as soon as he took, as he chose to be that type of man, was that a self-consciousness enveloped him and destroyed all his peace of mind. He fled uh, amongst the trees. Now that may be putting it in a very simple way, but self-consciousness is one of the most amazing and fundamental roots of all kinds of trouble and unhappiness. It's a fundamental thing in humanity. It's something we grow up with. Self-consciousness. It comes out in all kinds of ways, whether it be fear of people, fear of talking to people, fear of being yourself, or fear of God, fear of praying, fear all kinds of fear. But self-consciousness, is a very big thing. It's not just being afraid to play the piano in the presence of friends. It's not just uh, uh, blushing a little if someone should mention you publicly. Self-consciousness is a much deeper thing than that. Because self-consciousness is the thing that gives rise to fear and distrust. The immediate effect of self-consciousness was fear. Frightened. He was frightened of God. And he would also have been frightened of other men if there had been any. It was self-consciousness that gripped him and has gripped humanity ever since. One of the evidences of the kind of constitution we have got is self-consciousness. Look into your own heart and life and you'll find that there in your own life there is this thing that we call self-consciousness. One of the first things we find here. The second thing we find is also quite immediate. It says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So the second thing we see about this constitution was immediate. If they had taken the tree of life, they would have fled to God in the presence of evil. They would have fled to God. But now for the first time they stand apart from God. They don't refer to him. They don't defer to him. They immediately start upon seeking to rectify the wrong themselves. And that is the whole course of human history comprehended. The history of humanity has been trying to rectify what happened at the fall. People are always living under a kind of veneer. It's a very thin veneer. But there we are. The whole of, of modern society today, for instance, is the, is the, the artificial facade over a complete inner corruption. Trying somehow to cover it up, trying somehow to gloss over it, trying somehow to dress it up in one way or another and make it all seem far less evil than it really is. It's not really that. Don't call sin, sin. Don't call evil, evil. Don't call iniquity, iniquity. Those are just sort of wrong thoughts or, uh, you know, wrong thinking or error or one or two other little thoughts along that line. That's the kind of thing that the world says today. You must not call anything by its name. And if you're in a scrape, you must get out of it. It's amazing when we come to the Lord, isn't it, how this temptation is the one that will commonly assail us. We must not come to the Lord, something says. So you can't come to the Lord, not in that mess. You must clear yourself up before you come to the Lord. 
You can't bring yourself like that. It's making use of God. It's sort of, uh, uh, as it were, um, giving God the dread. You've got to clean yourself up. You've got to reform yourself. And then you can come to God when you're in a slightly better condition. Well, man did just simply that. He, he had started on the course of self-dependence. And that has become one of the basic characteristics of this world. Self-consciousness is one. Self-dependence is another. And then you see again how self-centeredness comes out quite immediately. He says, when God says, Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Man immediately says, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And when the woman was asked, she said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. It was the, it was the first evidence of a self-centered constitution. Man now couldn't care less about Eve. He couldn't care less what happened to Eve. I do believe that if God said, very well, Eve must die. Man will say, that's all right, I'm saved. If we got rid of, very sad to see the end of Eve, but after all she did, she, that's what she, she ought to uh, suffer. She was the one that led me into the trouble and so on. But it was the evidence of a self-centered constitution taking shape. Here was man, and his first thought was his own preservation. Here was woman. Her first thought was her own preservation. For the first time, the constitution of man had become different. They didn't think of God. They didn't think of anyone else. They thought of themselves. And that is something upon which the whole of this world and humanity is built. So you have three things which are the immediate result of the fall. Self-consciousness, self-dependence, and self-sense. Now, that leads us to say one or two things. That means that man has a permanently disabled, perverted, and dissatisfying constitution. Self is the most disabling thing of all. Terribly disabling thing. It can get you a long way and leave you wet. People climb to the top of their sphere, of their realm, by selfhood, by aggressive selfhood, forceful selfhood, we call it personality, soul force. They reach the top only so often to throw themselves over a bridge or under a train or something else and say, satisfied, doesn't satisfy them. They, they, this constitution can be given everything in this world and yet in the end, absolutely dissatisfied. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Man will to gain the whole world and lose his own soul. What shall it cost? So you see, here you've got something which is, is amazing. Man, one of the consequences of the fall, is that we have all become a certain kind of humanity that God never intended. There is not a single one of us been born into this humanity that has, has not got this constitution. And it becomes, of course, people say, well, it's not so apparent. And well, that's quite true. There are degrees. There's an amazing variety. Some people are more self-centered than others. That's quite true. It's not always in exactly the same degree. There's variety of it. 
Some people have got a, a much more lovable self-centeredness, and other people have got a simply vile self-centeredness. But nevertheless, the constitution is the same. You can't get away from the constitution, whether it be in multitudinous forms, a tremendous variety. The actual constitution is the same. And that constitution is a disabled one. It is perverted. It has within it an eternal lack and void. That is, man in his present state and with his present constitution can do a tremendous amount. He can gain a tremendous amount. He can go a long way. And yet, at the end, he knows he's not really got anywhere. He's conscious that he's got a whole lot of facts, a whole lot of things, he's gained a whole lot of perhaps possessions, but he's not got the thing that something inside of him tells him is the only thing worth living for. So there you've got the Constitution, that is a permanently disabled one. You've only got to go out into the world, and you've only got to apply these facts to the world, and the world to these facts, to see how this third chapter of Genesis is the purest truth that you will find. People, either, as I've said, have glossed it up, they've dressed it up, they've tried to pretend that it's not this, but you get behind the veneer, get down to basic facts, and this is the thing you find everywhere. Disabled people, perverted people, dissatisfied people, people with a lack, people with a void, people who have got a vacuum inside. And you'll find people whose whole life is just a, a long history of this kind of constitution. They don't want to leave it, and yet they can't bear it. And then another thing I want you to, uh, to note is that the whole of human history is patterned and shaped and molded out of this constitution. That is, the whole of human history simply bears out this constitution. People say, why all the wars? Why the strife? Why the carnage? Why the bloodshed? Why the selfishness? There you've got it have all the summit meetings in the world and the treaties made and pacts made and conferences made and all the rest of it and it just lasts literally for as long as man's selfhood allows it. Selfhood is the thing that lies at the root of it all, whether it's national, whether it's racial, whatever it is, it is selfhood at the root of it. And it is that thing which uh, can never give that's why God says there is no peace to the wicked. They're like the restless waves of the sea. The picture that we have always of the nations. The nations are often depicted in Scripture as the sea, roaring backwards and forwards in, a, in an eternal state of turmoil and restlessness. Can't find peace. Can't rest. Well, there you are. That's all. You'll see there uh, that education, culture, any kind of social reform will not touch the matter at all, will it? You can educate and educate and educate and educate a person. You'll never educate them out of this constitution. 
You can, cu- you can try to make a person cultured, you can instruct them, you can do every kind of thing with them, but you can't do anything about that constitution. You can get the most cultured person, who is the very symbol, personification of this kind of constitution. I'll give you examples of that. People who've been the vilest of men, the greatest of dictators, who've been at the same time very educated people and very cultured people. So we could go all through history just proving these simple facts. You can't, can't get away from this constitution. You can educate it, you can cultivate it, you can develop it, you can try to suppress it, repress it, but you won't get uh, a difference. The Lord Jesus has the answer, and he said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then the second <coughs> terrible consequence of the fall is perhaps, <coughs> I don't know whether sufficiently we realise how terrible that first consequence is. I think we could do with that door open, if you don't mind. Um, I don't uh, think perhaps we sufficiently realise how really terrible um, uh, that first consequence is. But the second is certainly, if not as terrible, more terrible, certainly. And that is that a most profound, and terrible alliance has been made between Satan and man. This is found in verse 15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. What did the Lord mean when he said to the serpent, Thy seed? Thy seed. He was really saying that a most terrible, terrible alliance had come into being between Satan and man. Terrible alliance. Now I think we ought to look at some scriptures on that to bear that out. If we look first at John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 38. <coughs> could someone read that? That's rather sure you could read that. 38, 41, and 44. You note that your father, the devil, the Lord Jesus con- contrasts um, his father with our father. Ye are of your father, he says, the devil. Now, if you look at Matthew, chapter 3 and verse 7. Chapter 12 and verse 34. And then Matthew 23 and verse 33. And then 1 John 3. One John three and verse eight. In this not five and verse nineteen. Perhaps the most terrible thing about the fall is the fact that humanity has been fathered by the devil. 
it was not merely that Satan seduced humanity. It was not merely that he deceived humanity. It was that in that act, humanity became involved in Satan. So that John could say, the whole world lieth in the heathen one. And so that the Lord Jesus could speak of him as the prince of this world or age. A most terrible alliance took place at the fall. Man's self-centered constitution was fathered by the devil so that the scripture from beginning to end bears this simple point out that by birth naturally we are born into an alliance with the evil one and into a relationship with the evil one that involves us in ultimate judgment. God is going to judge the prince of this world and because he's going to judge and has judged the prince of this world all that are involved with him are judged in his judgment. You read the last chapters the book of Revelation you find that the devil is cast into the the lake of fire, and all that are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Everyone that's fathered by the devil, everyone that's in this alliance with the devil, everyone that's got this relationship to the devil. It's not a question of how you grow up as to whether you and I say, I think I'm going to leave God to himself. It's not that at all. It is a question that by birth, whether we like it or not, we are in a relationship with the devil, and the only way out of that relationship is to be born again. That's the way out. God shuts us up to that way. You can reform, you can have a clean-up, you can become religious, you can get christened, you can be baptized, you can get confirmed, you can come and take communion here, you can do what you like. But that will not affect you the scripture is quite implicit. You and I, the only way to get out of this relationship to the devil is to be born again. And then that link is snapped. We may know something of, a, of an old nature, of the flesh life, which is the ground for the enemy. But thank God, we are of God. The scripture says we are of God. Born not of the will of man, not the will of the flesh, nor of blood, but of God. Yes? Yes? I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy seed, th thy head, and thou, that is the serpent, shall bruise his heel. Not they shall bruise, uh, you see? Um, now, the, the, whilst it's absolutely true that um, <coughs> this enmity between these seeds is, is um, a corporate thing, it is viewed, as always in Scripture, as represented in a person. There are two people viewed here. Adam, mm -hmm. who is the head of a devil-fathered humanity, and Eve, who stands for a, a, a humanity in Christ. So from this point on, you get two seeds, the godly seed, 
and the bad seed, or the evil seed. The godly seed, uh, quite, sim quite simply, uh, from here, goes on to Seth, and then goes on to Enoch, I'm just picking out the important names, Noah, Abraham, uh, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and so on, right the way down to the children of Israel. That is the seed, you see? But um, I think if uh, we could uh, lead that to really we come to the question of the answer, is it actually to do with the answer more than the consequences? Um, thy seed, it is quite clear in the word, um, uh, is a, a, a reference to um, uh, the seed of the serpent. It's quite clear if you read it with an open mind here that the seed of the serpent cannot be the seed of the actual uh, snake. Uh, it is obvious here that the enmity that's being put between this seed, uh, thy seed, and the seed of the woman, uh, is between two kinds of men. Oh yes. Well, yes. Well, some people had done, but of course, no, but no, of course. Well, now you've got to ask yourself the question then, straight from that. Then, what does this mean? He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You see that. No, I mean, when he hits the snake on the head, you see it's possible. Yeah. In the first point, the snake gets through the heel. Yes. Yes. I know, but I mean, in many ways, uh, if you take it like that, it. Um, well, I think the story itself seems uh, why it should ever be there and why the whole of the rest of Scripture should take up this little phrase like Isaiah takes up a whole a virgin shall conceive or a young woman shall conceive and bring forth the firstborn shall call his name Emmanuel and then later on it's taken up in New Testament and Galatians are told that to thy seed, not to thy seeds, but unto thy seed it says. Verse 14 has already spoken about coping Yes, that, and then again, you see, nearly all the early church fathers would take that as a reference to Satan. Beyond that, you see, the whole of this chapter you could take to snake. <coughs> but we know from the rest of the Bible, you can't argue just from this, you've got to take from the rest of the Bible who was behind this, and what did the Lord mean by this. Oh, I know you get to invite you. Yes. Yes, I think so. Yes, certainly. But anyway, as I say, you've got uh, one thing that is quite clear from the scriptures that there is that by the fall there came into being a relationship between humanity and the devil which never existed before. And the relationship is as father to children, and children to father. That is borne out far, far more deeply than I have said, because the Lord takes it up again and again by saying this simple thing, the works of your father ye will do. He is just stressing um, a character that is being transmitted from father to son. And he says, the kind of works that that character produces in the Father is the kind of works that are going to be produced in the Son. And so we get this, you sin, the devil sinned from the beginning. You lust, the devil lusted from the beginning. You murder, because the devil murdered from the beginning. 
You lie because the devil lied from the beginning. You see, the devil himself fell into this kind of constitution. That raises a lot of problems. But it was the I that first came into prominence. If you read in Isaiah and Ezekiel, you say, I will be like the most high. I will exalt my throne to the, um, and so on. Uh, it was the I. Now this has come into man. And man has become a different kind of constitution. And the result is a terrible relationship with Satan. And you cannot get away from that, and you should study this, um, you cannot get away from that by just saying it is the Pharisees and the Sadducees because John makes it as broad as he that doeth sin is of the devil and then he goes on this is how we can tell the children of God and the children of the devil then again you see um, if you want as, as John has already said the whole world lieth in the evil one and moreover, as I've already said, the judgment of the world, the judgment that's upon Satan, is a judgment that the whole of a devil-fathered humanity is involved in. Now, you may need a little more evidence for that. Um, you will find in the Word of God that this relationship, which came into, begin beginning at, into being at the fall, is a relationship which the devil maintains and develops. Now, if you look at um, Ephesians 2, and I think this is really a, a key <coughs> thing, because each, there's no scripture of private interpretation. That word bruise is quite interesting, at least, in. Yes, it does. But if, when we come to it, we shall see that, probably next week, we'll be Ephesians 2 and chapter 2, or we'll read from verse 1, because I think it bears out this point. And now, I want you to note three things. I want you to note in verse 2, according to. Wherein ye once walked according to. According to. Now, what does that mean? According to. You walked according to who? To the course of this age, this world to the prince, according to the prince of the powers of the air. Who is the prince of the powers of the air? You and I walked according to him. But there's something even more terrible here. It says, the spirit that worketh in the sons of disobedience. And do you know what the word worketh is? It is the word energizes. He energizes them. He is the force in them the life force, the power, and there is not one of us that's excluded. We were all children of wrath. Children of wrath is a term that just is, is synonymous with children of the devil, children of the night, children of darkness, it says, and so on. There's just one aspect of it, children of wrath. And when you note another thing, you note one according to worketh in, energizes, and the other is sons of disobedience. That word sons are children. We are children, of course. What are sons? They are those that have gone on. So then Satan maintains this relationship as the Lord maintains his relationship with us in new birth. And as he tries to bring us to the point of sonship, <coughs> so Satan brings his children to be full-blooded sons of disobedience. Not just children, 
but responsible, quite responsible. They've grown up in evil, grown up in disobedience. And now Satan is absolutely energizing them. I say that's a tremendous thing, something which perhaps uh, we can only grasp very, very, very simply. And so you see, Satan's character is reproduced. If you look at John 8, 44, you find simply, we've already read it, but you find these things. The lusts of your father, it is your will to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and standeth not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father thereof. Oh, what does that simply mean? <clears throat> there are three things there. Lust, murder, and lying. And those three things are basic constituents <coughs> of this age and of this humanity. You know, <clears throat> murder does not necessarily mean literally actual murder. The Lord Jesus told us that it, it's the spirit of the thing. You murder the person without actually killing them. You can, uh, this world is built on a lie. Built in a lie, built on a lie. The whole structure is false. So, you see, <clears throat> there's a, a most terrible consequence of the fall. We are not only, we've not only got a constitution that is so different from what God meant it to be, and one which can never bring us joy or happiness, but must forever leave us disabled and dissatisfied. But we have come into a relationship with the, with the enemy, which is, oh, you and I only find out when we're saved, how Wrong an alliance our flesh has got with Satan. It would side with him so many times. It would do his will. It would <coughs> flee to him if it could. Oh, people say they don't. This is a bit far-fetched, fantastic. But oh, if you find out what you like, you can find out what an alliance there is with your flesh life, the enemy. Even when we are children of God, that ground, look at Romans 7, great contortion of a child of God when he begins to find out that there's something in him he called a wretched man that I am who can deliver me from the body of this death there's something here that's got an alliance with evil powers with evil things and it's like the raven it must satisfy itself with those things so there's something terrible there and then <clears throat> a third consequence of the fall is a subtle perversion of God's character and purpose in the eyes of man. We've seen how already we've seen the beginning of this in the perversion of Eve. How she began to entertain doubts about God's goodness and about God's liberality and God's love and grace and so on. And gradually as that developed you know how the enemy piled on the insinuations. Till in the end he deliberately contradicted God in quite blatant ways. And Eve succumbed to the whole thing. One of the most tragic things about our natural state is the perversion of God's character. We either have this view of a, of a God that terrifies us, or we've got this other view of a God that's so benign and benevolent so that you can do anything and get away with it. Neither are true. It is a terrible, terrible work of Satan. 
this terrible work of perverting God's character in his eyes. You see it here straight away in Genesis 3 with the terror with which man viewed God. He really was immediately terrified of him. A fear had come in, a terror, a distrust of God. Man couldn't trust God in the same way that he trusted him before. He fled from him. He wondered just what was going to happen and exactly how things were going to work out. And that has been so ever since in man. It's amazing when people, for instance, first come under the sound of the gospel. They're so afraid. They can't trust the Lord. They're quite sure that if they go that way, it's going to be terribly miserable. Everything's going to go and everything else. It won't be a way that would really mean anything to them at all. And so on. They are something of this work of the enemy. And you find it <coughs> in the scripture quite clearly. The Lord Jesus summed it up when he spoke to the woman at the well of Samaria. He said, ye worship that which ye know not. What an amazing phrase that was. Ye worship that which ye know not. And then again, uh, it comes out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. The God of this age who has blinded the minds of them that please God, lest they should see. You worship that which you know not. Do you know what you're worshipping? You don't realise it, but you're worshipping the God of this age. So deceive the minds of those that do not believe. Again, people say, that's too far, that's going too far, but just wait. We have to investigate these things to see if, we, uh, if we're going far enough. Uh, in Romans 1, we've got this. <clears throat> because, verse 21 of chapter 1 of Romans, because that knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither gave thanks, but became vain in their reasonings, and their senseless <laughs> heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of an image of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. In other words, so terrible did this perversion of God's character come, become that man began to worship the weirdest idols and You've only got to see pictures of some of the idols, for instance, of India or Burma or some of the other southeastern nations to realize how, what weird things man will worship. And you see something with a thousand arms and a nose that comes up with jagged teeth or bulbous eyes or things that are terrible in the extreme. And then you think this is far-fetched. How could man come to worship such a perversion of God's character? Or some of the idols in, in, in part of Hindu India that have bodies that hang out of the mouth, carved, hanging out of the mouth, gods that have them clutched in their hands, feeding themselves. And that a man bows down, gives offerings of rice and other things to such creatures. Well, it's all contained again here in this amazing verse 25. For that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then you read the rest, what, how God gave them up to all kinds of terrible things. You see what happened? This perversion of God's character in the eyes of men had the most far-reaching consequences. It meant that man got down to a degraded and depraved level. 
do all kinds of things. Because you see, what you worship has a tremendous effect upon the standard of your life. Tremendous thing. Worship an idol, and you'll find that out. And then in you'll find it again in Paul's great argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> verse 18. Oh no, verse 19. What say I then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. So there you've got it. Behind the idol, a demon. And all kinds of things are perpetrated in the name of God by the God of this age. And men and women in countries, not only in the East, but here in the West, are gripped in a vice-like grip of a worship which they believe to be of God when it's immersed. You find that again and again in all kinds of ways. And then you'll find too that another consequence of the fall was an awful separation from God. A separation from God which, as you know, had its beginnings in man's fear of God. He fled from God. But later on, God shut him out. He drove him out of the Garden of Eden. This separation between God and man is not just judicial, as some people think. It is something far, far more practical than a judicial, legal separation. Man lost the only constitution by which he could be one with God. That's the point. There was no good God keeping man in a state of abject misery in his presence, and man in the presence of God, in his present constitution, is in abject misery. Heaven hell is a self-centered constitution. God was merciful driving man out from the garden and putting that flame of a sword to cut every way to stop man from ever getting back until something could happen in a way that could restore man in a right way. It was not just a judicial separation, a legal separation. It was a separation that came about because man was no longer capable of being one with God. He had lost the capacity. That, I say, is a terrible thing. It's far, far, far more uh, practical than we realize. You get all these things that we find in the world. Aimlessness. Valuelessness. Emptiness. And so on. Those things. Fretfulness. Where do they come from? They come from a creature that was made for its God that is away from it. And that separation in Scripture is simply called death. You see, death in the eyes of God is not cessation of being. We always think of death as cessation of being, the annihilation of something, the end, the eliminating of something. Death in the eyes of God is something which has ceased to function as it should, or ceased to have the capacity to fulfill the ministry that it should. That's death. It's something, you see, made for a certain purpose that is now no good. If this were here, I, if it had no bottom to it, 
I would say, here is a tumbler that was made to hold water. It is alive because it's fulfilling its capacity to me. I want a drink and there it is fulfilling its ministry, its purpose. There's its destiny being fulfilled. Take the bottom out. I might look at it. I might think it's very thin. Or what use of it? As far as I'm concerned, dead. Utterly dead. It cannot even be satisfied itself. Because it can never fulfill that for which it was created. That is death in the sight of God. Man is dead. Because he has lost the only constitution which made him capable of being one with God. So I think you see um, how terrible those consequences are. I don't think <clears throat> we'll spend much more time except just to mention these one or two very small points and pass them very quick if you want to note them down. There are just one or two other effects of the fall that I've lumped together because I think you may ask questions about them. One is the breakdown in all man's relationship. It was immediate. What was once harmonious and cooperative, related, and interdependent became now all broken up. His relationship with God snapped. His relationship with woman snapped. He blamed her straight away. His relationship with animal, the animal creation snapped. You see it quite clearly here. For the first time an animal had to die for the sake of man in this chapter. And then you've got also here even his relationship with the vegetable creation or the plant creation, whatever you want to call it, has collapsed. Instead of uh, being in harmony with him, it's somehow against him almost. It, it does, it's got to be coerced and beaten, as it were, to produce anything, or to, for him to get anywhere with it. It causes him sorrow and toil and labor, and by the sweat of his brow, he lives by it. So you see, all his relationships are broken down. Genesis 2, and immediately in Genesis 2, man's relationship with other men have broken down. In the first few verses, Abel is slain by Cain. In the last few verses of chapter 2, Lamech kills two men. I'm so sorry, chapter 4, that's right. The first few verses of it and the last few verses of it. So man's relationships are broken down with man, and that begins the whole history of the breakdown of human relationship in every field, whether it be with God, with woman, between the sexes, whether it be between man and man, or woman and woman, whether it be in social, national, international, racial, whatever it is, it's the breakdown, it's the story of the breakdown of human relationships on every side. Breakdown of relationships with creatures. You come to Genesis 9, and then God allows a terrible dread and fear to come upon the animal creation of man. It's the outworking of something all the time, the breakdown in an ever-increasing way of relationships. What a terrible thing has happened by this fall. Man's not left in relationship with anything for long. It's a struggle to keep in any kind of relationship because of this terrible breakdown. You see also that the natural creation is perverted. If you read Romans 8, 19 to 22, you find there those wonderful words about the whole creation groaning and traveling in pain together until now. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for this wonderful emancipation from this bondage to corruption. And what does it all wait for? It waits for the revealing of the sons of God. When the sons of God are revealed, and that means when man is back in his old place with God 
and at the heart of everything, then everything else will come back into its harmony and relatedness once more. Isn't that a very wonderful thing? But because man has fallen, the natural creation itself is all out of gear. And we find that all the way through the wonderful prophecies about now when he says the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the wolf with the lamb, the child shall play with the adder <coughs> and the and, and so with the uh, asp and uh, so on. There's wonderful, wonderful glimpses of the future when everything once more is back in its old condition of harmony and relatedness. Well, there's something very, very wonderful there. Then there's another delicate matter, which is contained in verse 16. Nevertheless, I want to mention it because it is a consequence of the fall. It is humanity's basic bondage to sex. Something which has come into humanity, and by which means the devil has gripped humanity in his strongest grasp. More by this than anything else. Has he gripped man? Oh, what a terrible thing, this that has come in by way of the fall. Something which before would have been beautiful, in many ways now perverted, and made something which causes such misery and unhappiness, and by which means the enemy controls life, utterly controls them, and keeps them in his domain, because of a sense of not being able to ever get free from it. Something then which God first instituted and constituted by the fall has taken on an altogether different light and character and has become a bondage. Now, <coughs> I say this is a delicate matter, <coughs> but I do feel that we should say a little about it. There is hardly any stage in the whole of human history where this bondage has not been a pattern. In many ways, because of the influence of the gospel in the West, it has, it has been refined, perhaps, reformed in certain ways. But if you've only got to read some of the histories of the nations round about Israel or other uh, civilizations of the world, to find out that most terrible bondage that whole nations could come into over this question. When I tell you, for instance, that nearly all the Eastern religions of the days uh, before the Lord's birth had this, this thing at their root. You'll understand how strong a thing the enemy has taken hold of. You find this also, again, in our own days. You find on every side a rising crime rate. But on the other side, you find an absolute refusal to do anything about it on the part of this generation. I mean, you find all kinds of most gross crimes, and yet people will not take care. You've got the most amazing films and the most amazing posters displayed. You cannot do that kind of thing and get away with it. You cannot dress in certain ways and then expect to be safe. This is the most terrible thing. And the result is being seen in our own generation. And all over the country today, uh, there are many uh, girls, for instance, that cannot go out, really, for fear of being murdered. It goes back to the whole question, not of those particular girls' conduct, 
but of the conduct of this generation in general. You can't have it both ways. You see, don't mean we've all got to come very, very prim and proper and sort of Victorian in that way. But the point is that there is a sober conduct and a sober behaviour and a way which uh, carries about it uh, a sense of godliness, of righteousness. So you see, there you have something which is a basic bondage by which means the enemy has caused, I suppose, more cruelty and suffering than anything else in the world and held men and women in bondage all their days to this thing. I mentioned that in passing. You may wish to ask questions <coughs> later on about it. But it's there. Something happened by the fall and you want to know the answer? I will tell you the answer. It is the constitution of man. If I may put it this way, and forgive me if it seems a little blunt, if man had been the man God intended, sex would have been an altogether different thing. But this self-centered constitution has made it a thing that is all. Therein lies the answer. It all goes back to two things. A constitution and the father. And then, <clears throat> lastly, I mention it simply in closing. The other last consequence of the fall is corruption and death. Dust thou art, 